Things fall apart. Shenwa Achebe wrote the book and won a shit ton of awards for it. I'm living it, though. Only it ain't pre-colonial life in Nigeria. Fuck no. It's Brett Johnson's house of cards come tumbling down. And tumbling down, they are. Elizabeth, gone. I'm drinking like a fish. I'm at strip clubs every night spending thousands. And I'm breaking countless laws. Oh, and I've been screwing over the United States Secret Service for months. All that shit has got to come to an end. And so it does with Operation Rolling Stone. It was a roundup of cyber crooks across the United States. I had been told the date and the people set to be arrested. Sean Mims was on the list. Sean. <laughs> Sean. A friend. Sean had been there for me when my wife had left me. He had befriended me and took care of me, made sure I was all right. And me? Well, I had raised him from a fledgling criminal to an expert cyber criminal, teaching him all he needed to know to steal hundreds of thousands of dollars. We were friends, and I had betrayed him. I had set him up and helped the United States Secret Service build a case against him. Sean was set to be arrested March 17, 2006. I was told to take the day off. I spent it drinking and talking to strippers. They arrested Sean that March 17, 2006. Sean was living in an apartment in Los Angeles. Secret Service swarmed the place, cuffed Sean, and frog-marched him off to jail. Then they searched his apartment and found no evidence of anything. Sean's apartment manager turns out to be very friendly and also very nosy. He comes out and starts chatting with the Secret Service agents who are scratching their heads at that lack of evidence. Now, I've got no idea how the conversation went, but I can imagine it. Secret Service agent standing there, you know, we just don't understand nothing in the apartment. As he's scratching his head, the apartment manager comes in. Nothing in the apartment, eh? The agent looks at the apartment manager with a bit of contempt, wishing he would go away, wishing maybe he would just explode right there so he wouldn't have to look at his stupid apartment manager face. Yeah, nothing in the apartment. No computers, no money, no evidence, nothing. The apartment manager nods knowingly. Maybe he smiles. Probably a really big smile. Hell, he might even wink at the agent because he knows the agent can't stand him. But he also knows something the agent doesn't something the agent needs to know. The apartment manager looks at the agent. You know, that might be because that U-Haul uh, truck he took out here last night. The agent looks blankly at the manager. U-Haul truck. Yep, yep. Sean took a good three hours loading up U-Haul late last night. Maybe that's the stuff you're looking for. The agent looks at the manager and nods his head. U-Haul truck. The manager nods back at the agent. Yep, yep, U-Haul truck. Bet you're glad I didn't explode like you were right fucking hoping, aren't you, you fuck? I walk into the Secret Service the next day. Bobby looks at me. Brett, we need you to take a polygraph. Achebe said it. All things fall apart. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast, where we visit the darkest corners of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original internet godfather. Now, what does it take to get a title like that? 
39 felonies, a place on the United States Most Wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community, Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's darknet and darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. This first season of the Anglerfish podcast tells of my rise and fall as the world's first internet godfather. It's a fascinating story. You'll learn how cybercriminals think, how modern cybercrime came into being, and why it's so successful and hard to stop, and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to one of using the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect others against the type of person I used to be. I remember you telling me about the Secret Service in in one of the episodes or one of the stories that you told me privately about they asked you if you had done committed any crimes or done this or that but one of the things they asked you was have you talked to the new york times <laughs> what's what's that about what's that about well you could ask tom zeller of the new york times he, he would know well what that was about was you know i began work for the secret service and i was working with them every single night in the first two weeks as i think i've mentioned before you know they were really diligent they paid attention to everything that was going on so this was probably the the first week that I was working for them. I'm, we're there one night, and I'm on ScandinavianCarding.com was the name of the site, this criminal forum. So I get this text message, this private message through the forum software, and it pops up on the screen. I, I read it, and it's this message that this guy is saying he's with the New York Times, that he's a reporter, and he would like to talk to me. So both Brad and Bobby are there that night, and I look over at him. I'm like, hey, guys, looks like the press is wanting to talk to me. Can I? And they're like, no. And I'm like, what do you mean, no? No, you can't talk to the press. Well, you got to figure, here, here's the thing. I have always wanted, you know, when I knew I was a criminal and I was doing all this tech stuff, I, I had this idea, as I guess most cyber criminals have at some point, of, you know, if I ever get caught, I can be a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't understand at that point how difficult that is. You know, I'm very fortunate today to be able to do that. I'm, I'm very grateful because people gave me the opportunity. Most cyber criminals will never have that opportunity. They simply won't. It just doesn't happen. No one's going to trust you enough to do that. So here I am. I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm very naive. I'm thinking, all I need to do is start talking to the press and I'll, I'll be all right. Well, they tell me no. So what do I do? I sit there and I memorize the number that this New York Times writer has included on the private message and I get off work that night immediately go over to a phone booth where they have a pay phone because back then you had pay phones I remember, like those, days. I remember those days <laughs> so I call this guy and he picks up and I'm like hey uh, you left me a message on Scandinavian carding and he's like who is this and I was like my name is Brett Johnson you know me by the name of Gollum Fun he's like your name's Brett Johnson I was like yeah my name's Brett Johnson he's like how do I know your name's Brett Johnson I was like well look I said, right now I'm working for the United States Secret Service. And he's like, whoa, 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 you're doing what? And I was like, look, man, I was arrested four months ago. You can pull it up online. I said, my name is Brett Johnson. I'm currently working for the United States Secret Service as a paid informant. And he was like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. He was like, how soon can I come down and visit you? <laughs> and I was like, when do you want to come down and visit? 
Because I'm sitting there going, oh, yeah, this is my ticket right here, man. <laughs> so his name was Tom Zeller. He was the cybercrime reporter for the New York Times. And he flies down to Columbia, South Carolina. And we meet and have lunch the next week. And I tell him, I tell him everything except for my criminal activity. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want him to know I'm still breaking the law. So I tell him everything that I'm doing for the Secret Service, and I just spill the beans, spill the beans. And he starts flying down either weekly or bi-weekly to talk to me. And it starts as a newspaper article. Then it turns into the New York Times Magazine article that he's working on. And then finally it gets to the point, Brett, I think we can make a book out of this. And of course, I'm just seeing dollar signs and a career of a cybersecurity consultant and speaker and everything else. Is he mentioning your name at all? Well... No, because I tell him, you know, all this is undercover. We can't do that. And he's like, well, I'll just work on, we'll work on this. And once the investigation's over, because, you know, I was told it was supposed to be three months. And I'm like, well, once the three months is over, I can spring this article or magazine or book will help springboard me into a career. Well, of course, it turns into be a year investigation that the only reason that ended was because they found out about me screwing them over. Mm. And Tom, he continues to fly down and talk to me because he's really interested in the type of work the Secret Service is doing. And I start giving him quotes. You know, what do you think about this, Brett? And I'll give him quotes. And those quotes are based on a lot of the stuff that I'm hearing from the Secret Service. So what happens is, <laughs> about six, eight weeks after I first meet him, I give him a quote on the marketplaces. That story runs on the front page of the New York Times. That afternoon, Jim, the second in charge for South Carolina, he comes down with a copy of the paper. Johnson, are you talking to the New York Times? And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he was like, did you give the New York Times a quote, this quote specifically? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm not frog marched but I'm led upstairs to the main office where Neil is there and they give me a proper reaming out you are not working with the press you are not law enforcement you are destroying everything I will send you back to prison right now do you understand I'm like yeah 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 I understand do not talk to the press ever again do you understand yeah 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 I understand of course that night I'm back on the phone with Tom Zeller talking to the press because I'm not a guy that works well with authority. <laughs> and that continued. So uh, that was the press. That was Tom Zeller. And, and my final, the final thing that happened between me and Tom Zeller, Operation Rolling Stone takes place. And of course, that's where they find out. And we'll walk through how they actually found out about me screwing them over and everything. But they found out I'm screwing them over. They revoked my bond, sent me to jail, and of course I ended up bonding back out. Well, when I bonded back out, one of the first phone calls I made was to Tom Zeller. I'm out. And what does he say? He's like, I'll be there tomorrow. Don't do anything. Don't go anywhere. And I'm like, absolutely, man. <laughs> so I'm getting ready to go on the run. The last person that I meet before I go on the run is Tom Zeller of the New York Times. Meet him downtown Columbia at this little bar. He brings a photographer in, and they're interviewing me, taking snapshots. And he's like, so what are you doing now? It's like, um, nothing. I've, I've got to go and get an attorney.
because I'm going to need one. I don't tell him I'm going on the run, but by God, he knows I'm about to take off. <laughs> so he asked me, he was like, uh, the last question the guy asks, he was like, Brett, why did you do it all? And my answer, my exact answer was, I did it all for Elizabeth. And his exact response to that was, Brett, God damn it, man, you've got to take responsibility at some point. And I had no clue, <laughs> no clue what the hell he was talking about. As far as I was concerned, that was why I was doing it. So that that was my thing with Tom Zeller. Of course, the, the magazine article never appears, the book never appears, the, the newspaper article never appears, because probably... The Secret Service said, we'd rather you didn't. Yeah, are you, are you an idiot? Do you know what this guy has done, not only to us, but to you? <laughs> and at that point, Tom's like... Yeah, I'll not run with this. But later on, uh, James Verini from the New York Times, he contacts me when I'm in prison, and I contribute to an article about uh, Albert Gonzalez. That, okay. I, that was featured in the New York Times at that point, at the magazine edition. But, um, yeah, so Operation Rolling Stone, they round up Sean Mims, who I'd set up. And what had happened was they arrest him, the apartment manager, as I told at the beginning of the podcast, the apartment manager comes out and says, hey man, this kid loaded up an entire U-Haul full of bullshit last night. That's why you can't find anything in the apartment. Oh, and by the way, he spent $30,000 on renovations in that apartment. <laughs> <laughs> Which he did. This kid Renting an apartment, this kid goes and buys Italian tile, $30,000 worth of work done to the entryway of the apartment. <laughs> I bet he paid it in cash. He did pay it in cash, as a matter of fact. So, of course, they lock Sean up, and they don't find any evidence. They come in the next day, and they're like, um, Brett, you need to take a polygraph. And my response was, I'm not taking a polygraph. Call my attorney. Because I thought I was a big shot at that point. So they're like, no, you call your attorney. So I get my attorney on the phone, and I was like, hey, man, I don't want to take a polygraph. And he was like, well, you don't have to take the polygraph, Brett. And I'm like, well, good. And he's like, but if you don't take the polygraph, they're just going to revoke your bond. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, shit. And he was like, well, have you lied to them? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, have you been breaking the law, Brett? And I'm like, well, yeah. He's like, well... He said, you can, you can just try to take the polygraph and pass it. I was like, okay. So I hang up. I look over at Bobby, and I'm like, uh, guess I'll be taking that polygraph now. <laughs> <laughs> so they lead me down to, uh, to, the, to this office where they've got the polygraph in. They've got this other agent that I've never seen before that's administering the polygraph. And they ask me three questions. He hooks me up and... I don't know if you've ever had a, had a polygraph. Yeah, I But, have. you know, they give you that whole hour speech yep. before you take it, meant to psych you out, to scare you to death. I didn't know that bullshit, so he's he's giving me, you know, the lowdown. If you cannot defeat this polygraph test, it's 100% accurate. We're going to know. We're going to know if you're lying. <laughs> so it's best, even before we hook you up, if you've done anything, now's the time to tell us. So I'm sitting there going, nope. Haven't done a thing. <laughs> Hook it up. Let's go. Let's cowboy up. So he hooks me up, and they ask three questions. Those questions were, have you used a computer outside of the offices? Have you been in contact with the press? And have you warned anyone about the investigations? So I answered no to all of them. 
He gets through asking the three questions, reads his little computer monitor, looks back at me. He's like, let's ask those again. I was like, okay. <laughs> so this time, he asked the same questions. And I just pause a little bit more before I answer him. Like, I'm really thinking it through. No. No. Absolutely not. Polygraph test ends. He sits back in his chair and looks at me. Uh, We've, we're showing some deception on your part, Brent. And I'm like, what? Yeah, it looks like you're lying about some of this stuff. And I was like, well, well, which question am I lying about? (laughs) And he's like, well, we're not going to tell you which question you're lying about. And I was like, well, let me see which one I'm lying about. Oh, no, you can't look at it. I was like, well, I'm not lying. He's like, well, we know you're lying. I was like, well, let me see which, which, which one do you think I'm lying about? So this, this literal conversation, this kindergarten conversation of I'm not lying, yes you are, I'm not lying, yes you are, continues, no shit, that was the conversation for 35 minutes. We know you're lying, I'm not lying, we know you're lying, I'm not lying. <laughs> for 35 minutes, man, until finally he gets, he gets exasperated, he looks at me, he's like, you must think we're stupid. And I looked at him, I said, honestly, I think you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> so he gets red-faced, storms out. I'm left there, I don't know, 20 minutes. By this point in time, I'm crying. Finally, Brad and Bobby, they come in, they're like, Brett, come on out here. So they lead me back up to, where, to my work area, that great room. They sit me down in a chair, so it's Brad, Bobby, and Jim, the second in charge. And they're like, Brett... We know you're lying about something. Just tell us what you're lying about. Well, so here's the deal with this. If you're going to get out from under someone's thumb, you got to give them something. So what am I going to give them? I, am I going to tell them that I'm that I'm breaking the law? No. Am I going to tell them that I that I told Sean Mims that there was an investigation? Here's the thing, and I I have flipped on this a few times over the years. The truth of the matter was. I never warned Sean Mims of a damn thing because at the end of the day, the most important thing to me was Elizabeth right down the street and I would turn anybody. I would, I would screw everybody over for her. So I didn't warn Sean of anything. I don't know how he knew that there was something awry, but he did. So I'm not about to say I told, told Sean Mims. So what was left was the press. So I was like, yeah, I've been, and I was crying and everything. I was like, yeah, I've been talking to, to Tom Zeller of the New York Times. I'm bawling like a baby. And they're like, is that really the only thing? I, was like, I swear to God, that's it. I've not done anything else. Everything's just fine. So, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, because I'm, you know, you're always, I'm always plotting. At this, I'm at this point in my life where I'm always plotting. I'm always plotting. There's an angle. So they're like, okay. If you're sure that's it, why did you talk to the press? Well, because I know this investigation is going to end. And I'm trying to be a legal person. I want to do good. I, I, you know, I just I want to I want a career. I want to make sure I don't ever have to go back to crime. <laughs> so then Jim looks at Bobby and and Brad, and he's like, "Take his ass over to the apartment, search the apartment, make sure he doesn't have anything." They're like, "Gotcha." So, <laughs> they load me up in the car, take me over to my apartment, and right here, right here is the moment when all that social engineering has to have, a, have an effect. Because I know I have laptops in the apartment, I have burner phones, I have 
stolen personal information. I have stolen, not stolen, but prepaid debit cards. I have a notebook full of information about me filing tax return fraud for this tax return identity theft. I've got all this stuff in the apartment and I've got cash in the apartment. And I don't need any of that shit found at all. <laughs> so they lead me up to the door. I unlock the door of the apartment. We step in, Brad and Bobby, and they were good guys, man. They were. They were good guys. They looked at me, and you could see it in their face. They're like, Brett, do you have anything in the apartment? Just tell us. And I looked at him, and I was like, Bobby, I don't have anything at all in here, man. I'll show you around, man. Come look with me. So here's what, what where everything actually was. In the bathroom, behind the medicine cabinet, there was this little cubby hole that I had some shit hidden. In the wardrobe closet, in the pants, I had pants hanging, in the pockets of the pants were debit cards, IDs, there was a thumb drive hidden between clothes that were that were folded and everything else. In the kitchen, between the plates in the in the in the in the cabinets, hidden between the plates, I had debit cards between that. In the air conditioning ducts, I had debit cards and cash and everything else. So there was there was stuff throughout the apartment. So I'm like, no, I don't have anything. I'll show you around. Come look. I'll show you where everything is. So I basically, the problem was, and I didn't find that out until I talked to Bobby, but the problem was is that they believed me. They believed, they thought they were my friend. They didn't understand that I was a criminal, that they weren't important to me. What was important was me committing crime and trying to be with this girl who had now left or I had broken up with her and there was nothing that was important to me anymore. It was Katie bar the door at this point. I know I'm in trouble and I don't give a damn anymore. So um, I led them around, showed them my porn collection, which they looked at and let them, I figured, and here's, you know, social engineering is all about when you're doing that type of social engineering it's it's about showing some sort of embarrassing vulnerability that if you if you if you tell someone an embarrassing fact it gets them to trust you you know my wife yep. cheated on me uh, I've got a porn collection that type if you show something some sort some sort of vulnerability or something embarrassing to you that person on the other end of that recognizes that they that, identify with you and they trust you. They, have your, never, con, they have your confidence. Absolutely. So you should have theirs. Right. So that's exactly yep. what I did is I used that tool so that they would trust me. They wouldn't think I had anything in the apartment. They do a very cursory search, basically just open the door, look in the drawers where I don't have anything and leave. So I'm sitting there thinking, now we're leaving after that. I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I'm going on the run tonight <laughs> tonight is the night that i bug out of south carolina and leave this friggin place the only problem was is they must have realized that brett johnson knew his time was up because we go back to the secret service offices and i'm not allowed to leave they're like no you're we'll stay here tonight until neil comes in in the morning well it's two o'clock in the morning by this point in time and i'm like okay what am i supposed to do you can sleep on the couch i'm like okay so i don't get to leave Neil comes in the next day. What has idiot done back there? He asked the two guys. And they're like, we don't know, but he's done something. So he's like, okay, we'll take care of this shit right now. He gets on the phone with my bondsman, revoke his bond. My bondsman says, I don't have a reason to revoke his bond. Neil's response is literally, find a reason. 
we're bringing him back. They put me in cuffs, drives, drive me from Columbia, South Carolina, down to Charleston, down to the bondsman, bondsman's office. I walk in. The bondsman takes custody of me. They leave. The bondsman sits down. He's like, uh, look, man. He's like, I don't want to revoke your bond. And I looked at him, and I was like, well, I don't want you to revoke my bond. <laughs> and he was like, but... That's the Secret Service, and they're telling me to revoke your bond. And I'm like, okay. He's like, so look, man. He's like, I'm going to revoke it. But he said, as soon he said, if it gets reinstated, as soon as it gets reinstated, I'll bond you out immediately. And I'm like, dude, that does not make me feel any better at all. <laughs> so he was like, got to do what I got to do. So he takes me back to Charleston County Jail. They throw me in the in the cell there. Three days later. Now, what happens is, I know I've got that shit at the house. And I know that they're going to go back in and do a thorough search of everything there. And I know that's going to get me some prison time. The problem is, is that I don't have a way to contact anybody to tell them that, hey, I need somebody to get in there and get my shit. When you're, in, when you're first brought into the county jail, ultimately you're given a number, a PIN number that you type into the phone so they can record, they know it's you that's calling out, and they record those calls, okay? So I know I can't use my PIN number to call a parent, my mom specifically, to tell her to go and get the shit out of, the, out of that apartment. So I use someone else's PIN number. It's pretty common to do that. And you take a chance that maybe they're not recording, maybe it's some low-life, you know, like drunk guy that they're not in, really interested in. So I, that's what I did. I used somebody that was in there for DUI. And used his pen, asked him if it was okay to use it. He's like, oh, yeah, man. Okay. So I, I used that to call an associate of my mom and tell her, has like, look, she needs to get to my apartment as soon as possible. Get everything out. Tell her the exact location of everything as well. Well, what was going on, I, I guess I was so high priority at that point. They're recording everybody's phone call that's in that damn cell at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so... Of course, they get that message that of Brett Johnson. Oh, this is where he's got everything. Okay. <laughs> they go over, get everything. Brad and Bobby end up losing their job because of that specifically. Three days after that, both Jim and Bobby come down to Charleston. They pull me out of a cell, and Jim has this Miranda. They take me to the interrogation room. They sit me down. Jim's seated across from me. Bobby is seated over across the wall sitting along the wall, and you could tell by Bobby's face, I mean, he is just upset. He is heartbroken. It's like someone has told him that Santa Claus does not exist. You know, he's just just destitute. And I'm looking, I'm like, okay, Jim's got the Miranda waiver in his hand, and he's not, I mean, he's just holding it there. And he's got this smug look on his face. Jim looks at me, he's like, okay, Brett. He's like, we've searched your apartment. We found everything that's there. Here's the way this is going to work. You're going to tell me every single thing you've done the past six years, or I'm going to make it my mission in life to fuck over you and your family. Not only right now. Once you get out of prison, I will hound you the rest of your fucking life. <laughs> then he slides the Miranda waiver over, gets a smile on his face, looks at me, and he says, Now, would you like to talk to us? I looked at him. And I'm like, no, I don't want to talk to you guys at all. 
I guess that they, they did not expect, because that entire 10 months I'd been working for the Secret Service, I had been kind of like this little lap dog I'd been act, acting like. They didn't expect that response. I guess they thought I was going to cave at that point. Jim, his face drops. Bobby goes, <gasps> Jim stands up red-faced, storms out. As he's walking out the door, literally looks back at me and says, well, fuck you very much. Walks out. And at that moment, Ken... I was at complete peace with everything across the board. I was like, it's done. I know where things stand. I'm going to prison. I'll probably serve three years. I'll be all right. And I'll get out and do it again. was basically my thought pattern. The problem was, two weeks after they stormed out of that interrogation room, I was only under state charges. The state judge, I hadn't been federally indicted. They were still building that case. The state judge ruled the Secret Service revoked my bond improperly. The state judge reinstates that bond. That bondsman who promised me he would bond me out as soon as it got reinstated, he promptly bonds me out. I, it's late at night. It's like 10 o'clock at night. The intercom in the cell, it buzzes. Johnson, pack your shit. I'm like... Oh, and I tell my cellmates, I'm like, well, I'm being transferred to a federal facility right now. And they're like, man, good luck to you. And that's what I'm thinking. I'm being transferred to a real prison right now. No, they cut me loose. I dress out. And the whole time, I'm like, even as I'm walking out the door, I'm like, well, Secret Service is waiting for me right outside. They're just going to transport me as soon as I walk outside. No, I walk outside. I'm a free man. I'm like, what the hell, man? Call my mom, because she's the only person around. I call her. I was like, come pick me up. <laughs> so she picks me up, and she's like, what's going on? I was like, I bonded out. They bonded me back out. She's like, so what's going on now? And I was like, well, I've adopted a new philosophy. And she's like, what's that philosophy? And I'm like, it's a philosophy I like to call, if you're going to fuck me, you are going to have to find me. So I go back to, not back to, my mom was living in Aiken, South Carolina with her sister and her husband's, or her, her sister's husband. So I go back there and I need money. And initially my idea was, well, what I, what I need to do is I need to steal enough money to hire the best attorney that I possibly can and then come back and deal with all this. Had no money at that point, no money at all. So I had been dating Kim, this stripper that I had met after Elizabeth. I had been dating her. I had given Kim, pro Kim probably uh, probably $60,000. In, in the space of seven months, I had probably given Kim, Kim $60,000. Easily. Easily. So I called her up and I was like, Hey, Kim, um, I had paid for her divorce twice. <laughs> she was married, had kept telling me, Oh, I'm leaving my husband. I just need enough money for the divorce. I had given her the money for the divorce twice on top of all this other stuff. So I called her up and I was like, Kim, I need some money. And she's like, what do you mean you need money? I was like, look, give me $1,000. In two weeks, I'll give you back $3,000. And she's like, Brett. And I was like, I promise, you know I'm good for it. She's like, meet me in Augusta. That's where she lives. She's like, meet me in Augusta at Lowe's. I was like, okay. So I drive to Augusta at Lowe's meet her in the parking lot there and she's got a thousand dollars and she's like what are you doing i was like well <laughs> i need to go and get enough money to get an attorney i said i'll be back and by this point in time i figured no i won't be back it's, it's i'm coming to the realization that 
an attorney is not going to solve my problems, and I will not be back. But I'm not going to tell her that. So uh, she gave me $1,000, and I was, geez, my, my state of mind at that point was any woman that would talk to me, I was going to fall in love with. <laughs> you know, and so I'm telling her, I love you, I, I adore you, I, I'll be back, I, everything will be all right. So I get the $1,000 from her and take off on Interstate 20. No idea, no idea where the hell I'm going to go at all. Get to Tuscaloosa. And I was so bad. I'm so out of sports. I don't know anything about sports. Man, I didn't know Auburn was in Alabama until I married Michelle. I didn't know Tuscaloosa was where the University of Alabama was. So I get in Tuscaloosa and I rent a hotel stay the night there and as I'm as I'm in Tuscaloosa it occurs to me that Dallas Texas has a prepaid debit card supplier that I could probably stop by get the cards and begin my run at that point Thank you for listening to this episode of Anglerfish. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's brett, B-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H.com. Please tell your friends about us. Rate and review the Anglerfish podcast wherever you can. In the next few weeks, we'll be launching Season 2 of Anglerfish, which will examine the darkest corners of our online lives and what you need to do to remain safe. Please email me questions, comments, concerns, personal stories, and any topics you might like to hear discussed. That's brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant.